I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. And I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Last week, we talked about A.E. Smith, an evangelical Christian who turned into a communist. <laughs> Not like in a weird horror movie way. <laughs> <laughs> in a very good uh, Transformers kind of way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, um, one of the pivotal points in his life was reading the Communist Manifesto and bringing it into the community of the People's Church. Um, He always kind of had a social justice kind of bent to his ministry, but the Manifesto was a big deal for him. The Manifesto is also a pretty big deal for the history of the left. Um, Marx and Engels wrote it, and we all have been reading it since 1848. As we've mentioned in past episodes, it's uh, got a strong rhetorical force behind it, um, some sort of religious feelings. I think that's something we talked about maybe two weeks ago. And uh, explicitly... The thing that it does best is describes the nuances of class antagonism and the role of each class, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, in the shifting train of the capitalist political economy. So, because the Communist Manifesto is such a big deal, we're going to spend some time in this episode doing like a Communist 101 on the Communist Manifesto. Uh, but before we do, Dean has some exciting uh, Pope news. That's right. Uh, we don't believe in the death penalty anymore, it turns out, in the Catholic Church. Catechism got changed. People probably saw that already. But it's a big deal. It's taking Catholic Twitter by storm. People are losing their minds over it, uh, as Catholic Twitter does, I guess. Uh, In other places, publications are upset about it. Um, Some people are really into it. But it is actually a big deal, and it's a big deal for a lot of reasons. Um, it's a big deal, first, because the death penalty is a big deal, but secondly, it's a big deal because it signals that maybe Catholics can actually change their mind about something or develop their thoughts on something, however you really want to put that in a way that makes you feel comfortable, I guess. Uh, but the the logic is that potentially this sneaks in all kinds of things through the back door. Uh, really scary things like letting gay people be married or letting women <laughs> be ordained, Uh but uh, yeah, so it's big, big news, I guess. Seeing this all unfold on Twitter is kind of the weirdest thing for me. Uh, a Protestant looking in on a weird, like <laughs> peeking in through the window of like weird Catholic opinions. So, okay, I grew up in an evangelical church called the Church of the Nazarene, which is like adjacent to Methodism. It's like the more uh, uptight version of Methodism, if you can believe it. <laughs> 
Um, anyways, I remember uh, in a membership class when I was like a teenager, they told us that uh, uh, the death penalty is bad and abortion is bad. And they were trying to be consistent, I think, about like, you know, a pro-life sort of ethic. War is not so bad, though. That wasn't a problem for them. Hmm. Anyways, I grew up with like thinking... Uh, I grew up thinking that like the church has sort of like a sta- like a stance on the death penalty, and it was actually kind of shocking to me to think that like the Catholic Church had to change it just now. That's pretty wild. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, we have a reputation for being fine <laughs> with the death penalty, <laughs> uh, actively promoting it in many cases, but this time around we're i guess uh, shifting gears a little bit i mean it, people are acting like it is completely unprecedented or crazy and that is not true uh, <laughs> like a lot of very good theologians and historians have noticed that the catholic church has changed its mind about a lot of things that have been very it's good that they changed their mind like things like slavery or the doctrine of discovery or you know just weird um weird times in history where the church was clearly on the oppressor's side uh, so it's not unprecedented in, in that way. Um, and also, like, the catechism before wasn't, like, super psyched about the death penalty. It was like, yeah, well, sometimes, I don't know, maybe you've got to gotta be okay with it. That's kind of the gist. Um, but so it, was not, it wasn't, like, a celebratory thing that it replaced or anything like that. Um, but nevertheless, it is a big deal for sure. Yeah. I've, uh, I've seen katie grimes out there friend of the show katie grimes um <laughs> out there on twitter doing the lord's work uh trying to explain yeah, this to people for real and uh man uh that's cool that she took the time to do that <laughs> it's so frustrating for me because i'm just like why are these dumb people just not listening to her <laughs> um, yeah seriously but if i if i've got the situation right the problem isn't necessarily changing the problem isn't the stance on the death penalty the problem is that they've changed something yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a uh, it's a it's a nest of issues and problems. Uh, the death penalty is just one. I mean, it is a big deal, but it's just one facet of a, a much larger disagreement in over like what the church is or can and can't do and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's a weird religion. What can I say? Um, <laughs> my parents gave it to me, so saddled with it. Um, yeah. A bunch of other stuff happened. Uh, Nicholas Maduro almost got assassinated. That was crazy. Um, Speaking of the death penalty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A weird extra-legal United States probably funded death penalty. Um, that's my communist conspiracy theory that I super believe for sure. Um, what else happened? Some fascists were in Portland and some anti-fascists met them um, and uh, opposed them. So that's... Yeah, good that they were there, but bad that it happened. Right. So that whole thing was such a wild thing to see unfold on Twitter. Um, again, that's sort of like yeah. the the world stage uh, for me at the moment. <laughs> um, okay, so I tweeted about this about how I was stunned that like you know almost a year ago these same sort of like uh, alt right dudes showed up at Charlottesville and like ran someone down with a car, yeah. and like the cops are still showing up for them, and people you know people tweeted me back like. Yeah, duh. And, like, I get it. Yeah, it does, right. Um, but, like, what's even crazy, crazier to me about this whole thing is that, like, neither neither side of protesters had, like, the correct permits or whatever huh. to, like, march in the streets, and the cops still showed up for one side over the other. Right. Right. Pretty telling. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, again, like, duh. But mm-hmm. um, it's stupid. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. 
that event is so revealing to uh i think how public perception feels about the right and left just generally i mean cops obviously uh tend to skew in that direction um for pretty clear reasons i think but uh it's also telling that like the public in general at least to me doesn't seem that nervous about it like the the right is sort of taken to be the victims like these are just people who are trying to speak their mind or whatever and uh the left is taken to be like you know the agitators out there like stirring up trouble or whatever um which is clearly not (laughs) true um but uh a really disconcerting thing about liberalism i think yeah exactly um there was like a, a picture i saw from i think the portland police department where they showed like a picture of like a like a firework that someone from the antifa side uh brought to the protest and mm-hmm. they were like huh guess they showed up with weapons it's like you fly <laughs> you threw like a flashbang into a crowd you idiot like what are you doing <laughs> yeah, what are you, like there's no moral leg to stand on like that's yeah cr- crazy <laughs> right yeah, it's insane. Um, but I guess uh, what's a good transition here? All these things are somehow symptomatic of a crisis of liberalism and capitalism. We could say that, sure. Um, that's a good way into the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> um, so I, the reason I'm sort of just forcing us over here so quickly is that there's so much to talk about because I've just been being a real uh diehard fan this past couple few days rereading the manifesto every time i read it i just blows my mind how good it is um and there's way too much to talk about um, yeah same. Matt, when was like the first time that you read it dang i was gonna just ask you the same thing <laughs> <laughs> didn't even script that out i read it for the first time in a political philosophy class in my undergrad and um i read it and i was like oh this is for me <laughs> I did give a big presentation on it even, and uh, I spent, you know, 40 minutes of a class talking to my peers about why Marx is right. Nice. Yeah. And uh, the the professor I had in that class uh, is like a friend of mine and a colleague now. Um, and she's like, well, thanks for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> she started it in my life. She herself is uh, not a Marxist, but um, that's a gift she gave me. That's the... Yeah. Marxism is the gift that keeps on giving, you know? You give it to somebody, and then they become pedantic and horrible about it, and uh, that's me. When was the first uh, well, time you read it, Dean? Um, my first time was also in a class in undergrad, uh, in a class on Marx, Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard. Kind of a weird, um, weird 19th century philosophy class. Uh, Ooh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was really into anarchism at the time and read the manifesto and uh, just really dug it a bunch. And that's what set me on the path toward a sort of Marxist trajectory, I guess. And it was pretty neat. It wasn't really so much of like a Damascus Road thing, I guess, uh, as much as it was a sort of, oh, I think these are the things that I've been circling around for a while and couldn't like figure out how to address or like think about. Um, So the manifesto was like the first time I felt like there was a language to slowly investigate and like see if it made sense and like try it on. So, yeah. and then it did. In that same undergrad class, I also gave a class presentation on Jacques Ellul's Anarchy and Christianity. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> real, that class really crossing the spectrum there. I know. Get my money's worth, you know? I got all of that <laughs> stuff out of that class and uh, look, look where it's gotten me. <laughs> Straight to a, a podcast. Um, yeah. Nice job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh yeah well let's jump into it um 
All right, so I think that it's worth just spending a brief moment on the kind of preface to the whole thing. Um, the basic thrust is that communism is a, a spooky thing. You know, it's a specter haunting Europe is the famous uh, line. Um, but it's spooky in a way that I think is, it's not just like, oh, people are kind of afraid of it, but it's spooky in a number of ways. So, Matt, I know that you're all about ghosts. Um, I want to just give you a chance to to dig into your ghostly knowledge and maybe talk about that particular uh valence in the manifesto yeah so the opening line is this a specter is haunting europe the specter of communism all the powers of old europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter pope and czar metternich and Guizot, french radicals and german police spies so uh the the description of communism as a specter is something that's kind of cool it means something i mean we could kind of read it in a few different ways in the one in one sense it's something that kind of like keeps coming back right we talked about that pre-marxist communism that uh it's already a power in europe so it's like this thing that kind of returns again and again to uh antagonize <laughs> the, the people <laughs> that are in power um it's also like kind of one of those things that um you know pope and czar alike will just kind of uh, label as sort of an empty signifier that's just like out there in the world. And they say, oh, it's just those dang communists again doing their thing. <laughs> uh, just like the same way uh, conservative folks today say it's just them dang liberals. I mean, you know, the people, the uh, authorities of the past would have, um, you know, just used communism as a general scapegoat. So it's uh, uh, kind of like it's a specter haunting Europe because it's something that is clearly there but is undefined. It's something that's kind of like strange, peculiar, uncanny. No one's sure exactly what it is, but it's it's out there and it's gonna get you. Popes and czars. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really good metaphor, um, and I think uh, it's really apt to for our time today. Uh, the person I always think about in our own context is Jody Dean in this uh, sort of venue i guess because she so we had her on the show a long time ago to talk about the congress of resistance um but she talks a lot about this specific line that like uh if people are afraid of communists um it might be because communists actually exist and pose a legitimate threat and we should you know jump on that and uh seize it and really like own that situation um and that's like she gets that directly out of the manifesto so that same kind of specter haunting europe uh language i think is true in an even uh more in an even grander scale today uh it's like a specter haunting the whole world i think after you know the collapse of the soviet union uh or like the continued success of a place like cuba or something yeah totally um, other people have really played with this idea of like haunting too, in terms of communism. Uh, Derrida wrote a book about it. Uh, Richard Gilnopolsky has a whole thing about uh, like you know what it means for a political movement to haunt a place. Um, right. And uh, those are all cool ideas. <laughs> Let's cash in on them. Let's cash in on that good ghost <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> That's right. Um, also great because Ghostbusters is like a really weird libertarian narrative. So yeah, exactly. If you think about it. You should just be on the ghostly side. Yeah. Slimer. Slime those guys. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right. So one thing that kind of struck me reading this back again uh, that I didn't always catch before is how much time the document actually spends talking about the bourgeoisie. Uh, I think for some reason this just never occurred to me, but you would suspect a document called the Communist Manifesto would maybe just come out swinging being like, hey, this is what communism is and here's why it's so great and why everybody wants to get on board. 
Uh, but instead, it starts off with all the stuff about what the bourgeoisie is, how it developed, um, and how it operates in society. So we might as well just follow, at least kind of in a loose sense, the progression of the manifesto. I mean, we can we don't have to be totally chronological. Um, but I think starting with the bourgeoisie is good because it's a historical situation that suggests this is a class, an economic class, uh, that is creating conditions that help to both loosen up society from these feudal relationships, um, which they think is a good thing uh, in some respects. And it also is creating like new forms of abundance, uh, which is also a good thing, despite the fact that there's all this exploitation that occurs around it. Um, so yeah, I, I think maybe that's a good place to start. Um, anything that really just sort of jumps out about you or about the bourgeoisie to you there, Matt? So much. <laughs> I mean, <there's... laughs> so, okay. Let me first say this too, that like, sometimes when you come to like a really old text, like the manifesto, you think like, well, you know, it's like a classic kind of just like Plato's Republic is a classic or something, right? right? Like, you know, you'll glean some type of wisdom from it and that's awesome. Um, but the manifesto is kind of different, uh, because it actually does still kind of describe uh, the situation that we are in today pretty accurately, I think. There's, you know, some obvious, some obvious, like, you know, not great observations that don't hold up, but still, <laughs> there's some things that are, like, really right on. And I think uh, the place that we could start off talking about the manifesto and how it is still right is uh, with the bourgeoisie's relationship to technology. That's a thing that uh, I think is still pretty much the same so um when you think about marx and you think about the communist manifesto the images that probably spring to your head first are like workers in the streets and um you know taking over a factory or something you, you think about like the proletariat and like uh and a huge revolution right uh but marx tells us something kind of different right off the bat um that it's not the proletariat that are like the most revolutionary class it's actually the bourgeoisie that are pretty revolutionary not in the same way though like in a bad way yeah right <laughs> so uh let's start here uh the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society there you go so that's how the bourgeoisie are more revolutionary than the proletariat in the sense that like uh, they are constantly uh drumming up new types of technology that will uh expropriate the labor of workers in a more efficient way so that they can pay them even less or that workers will be even more um, instrumental rather than, you know, uh, critical in the production of goods or something. Uh, so the bourgeoisie uh, has this relationship with technology where they're always interest interested in revolutionizing it, always making something better, faster, and more efficient. So workers have to have less and less uh, specialization. So I think this is true, largely, uh, that this is kind of the relationship between the bourgeoisie and uh, technology. That's like something that people are always trying to figure out. Uh, it shakes out different in different places, though, right? Like, you can't really say this is necessarily true of the bourgeoisie of the United States, or at least it's not true of the bourgeoisie of the United States between the workers of the United States, right? Like, the bourgeoisie of the United States are probably trying to figure out exactly how to do this exact same thing, revolutionizing the instruments of production, but, like, in uh, more, like, quote, developing countries or something, whereas the workers of the United States are not, you know, laboring in the exact same way as the proletariat here. Um, but, I don't know, Dean, what do you think? Is Marx right still? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean... The two things I always think about when I come across this bit in the manifesto are um, not only that there's a lot of technical innovation that happens so that the bourgeoisie is able to sort of keep producing differently and more quickly and, you know, more profitably, 
but also that those kinds of uh, developments change the whole relations of society. I think that mm-hmm. bit is really important too. Um, that it brings into being like different ways of being a human person. And uh, that is a point that I think a lot of people sort of intuitively get, but like never really dig into. Right. So uh, it's like, ah, people are always just looking at their iPhones all day. Like uh, what is this the kind of society we want? And it's like, well, uh, whether you want it or not, um, it's here because like now there's iPhones, uh, not the iPhones are a, a, an instrument of production completely, um or not in the same way that say like ford's you know factory line assemblies uh assembly lines are uh, a change but nevertheless like this kind of tie to the innovation of production and uh the change of like whole social patterns i think is like a really important insight yeah totally we'll get to this in a little bit too not quite yet but uh there is some nuance here that i think is missing so like um in the larger scheme of marx's philosophy of history um, historical materialism you might have ever heard that word before like uh, capitalism is uh, it has produced a, uh, a situation uh, that when Marx is writing is like not good but um, and still in some ways uh, there is a sort of necessity to it in the sense that like the industrialization of Europe was kind of like something that Marx thought was you know good but after it happens it needs to be replaced by uh, a social society Um Anyways, I'll say that like uh, Marx's sort of uh, the the way that he kind of paints uh, these huge historical movements from like feudalism to like a more industrialized society are painted in pretty broad swaths, and I think for there's, sure uh, <laughs> there's some real nuance missing. But it's a manifesto, not like a treatise on <laughs> history or something. So you got to chill out, I guess. I, I have to chill out, <laughs> but uh, it's something worth noting, and I did. So we can move on, I guess. <laughs> yeah totally um i think uh though just to kind of keep keep going with this a little bit um there's another good quote here that kind of articulates the, the like world shaping power um of the bourgeoisie and precisely along these lines of production so uh they write mark senegal's right the bourgeoisie by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production by the immensely facilitated means of communication draws all even the most barbarian nations not great uh into civilization um, the cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e. to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. Hmm. Um, there's a lot going on there, but I think obviously Christians are probably attuned to that last bit, creating a world after its own image. Um, there's a real uh, obvious connection to a sort of idolatrous uh, reproduction um, of like the Genesis narrative almost, right? That uh, capitalism is weird because it's almost like in a really perverse way, um, almost like undoing the work that like, god does in some ways in genesis or something or like takes itself to be doing that same kind of work mm-hmm. uh you know uh building building a, a world in a way that is uh really like almost like irresistible yeah i think so it does set it up to be kind of that irresistible type of thing uh we'll talk about this more in a minute too uh there's a there's a part later on where mark says that you know um the workers the proletariat have no um have no nation, have no sort of like home country, kind of painting the proletarian as people who are completely dispossessed. Um, 
but bourgeoisie is the, the bourgeoisie are kind of the same way like um it's not that they have like one country but they have them all right it's like um it's like forcing a globalization across the world where everything is subsumed into this one type of order um hmm. and those other types of uh communities become way more illusory than they maybe maybe were before yeah for sure um and i think that also makes the challenge of thinking about things like the nation and the state uh all the more difficult and all the more important to attend to which they do um one really great quote in here uh is the one that says uh, the executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie mm-hmm. um i think that's a really important line because it isn't the case that the executive of the modern state is just concerned, for example, with what's going on in their particular state. Um, but there is this kind of uh, class interest that is troublingly international on the side of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. I always think about this when people talk about, you know, which bourgeois politician do you want to elect, like in a, in the United States, a Republican or Democrat, right? Um, it's not that there's no differences between them. There's lots of differences between them, and they make material differences. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are both interested in the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie, right? Um, and they probably like couldn't really get elected otherwise. Yeah, totally. And I think what Marx draws out here, though, is that you know not only are they interested in the common affairs of the bourgeoisie, but like, and their international counterparts too, right? That's why like right, bourgeoisie exactly. are like imperialists at their heart, like they have to be. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, well, so there you go. That's why uh, Joe Biden in the next election will still be bad. Um, That's right. <laughs> so, That's why Bernie Sanders in the next election will still be bad. Yeah, yeah. We will definitely come back to Bernie later um, toward the end of the manifesto. There's some good stuff to say about that. Um, but maybe we could talk a little bit more about kind of the the manifesto's theory of globalization, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, um, let's do it. Yeah. All right, so here's a really neat quote, um, troubling quote, but a good one. Um, So they write, The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. Uh, And I think that is a really important way of looking at uh, capital because it it does have to sort of keep finding new places, new... uh, uh, like markets to invest in that sort of a thing. Um, and that's exactly why, I mean, by the time you get to somebody like Lenin, where uh, he notes that imperialism is the highest form of capitalism, it makes sense because capitalists actually need that kind of imperialism. Right. That's why like everyone in Europe has to sit around and like draw up who's going to get which part of Africa <laughs> before they have the imperialist war, right. The first world war. Um so yeah, I don't know, uh, Matt. Anything else about globalization that really kind of comes out for you? Yeah, totally. So I mean, exactly what you just said. <laughs> Imperialism is the highest form of capitalism. That's uh, exactly true. Um, whenever I read this, though, I think about the ways that. I mean, I'm reading it from 2018. I guess uh, that's the only way I can do it because that's where that's the time period I currently live in. <laughs> if I time travel, maybe it'll be different. Um, <laughs> I guess what's wild is that you got to think about, I mean, capitalism is like a, it has to be international or at least it works best when it's international, right? Cause you're trying to constantly farm in new ways of making money. And I think of all the ways that like, um, completely stupid things that people don't actually need or want are created to just like, you know, keep that going. 
So it's like mm-hmm. um, it must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. But like um, it also fabricates those connections. It fabricates right. like it fabricates a place to get something from. Like capitalism is so pervasive as a as an, a political economy. Like it got it got into like the fourth dimension on the internet. I don't know if that's right, but it got <laughs> into the, it, it's like, you know, it, we have, we had to expand like into like a, a sort of virtual space where we end up selling like imaginary currency to people in world of Warcraft right. or something. Right. Like every capitalism has to wedge itself into every single situation to uh, create profits for somebody. Um, because like, that's its logic and it just, right. it's kind of, just does that thing and it's absolutely buck wild that it does <laughs> yeah for real um i think too that uh that dynamic um they really pull out the pathology of it i think in a really good way in the manifesto yeah. um you know they have all these metaphors for capitalism being unable to like bourgeois society can't contain the very gains that capitalism makes um and it produces all these kinds of crazy challenges that ultimately just can't be contained. Uh, so, I mean, we can talk about a couple of those metaphors in particular. Um, but one of them is a uh, one that always makes me think of uh, that scene in Fantasia where mm-hmm. uh, Mickey Mouse has like got all those brooms that's coming alive, and they start just pouring way too much water, and he doesn't know what to do. Um, so they say uh, modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange, and property. A society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. Uh, Nice little turn of phrase there, I think. So characterizing this as a pathology, I think, is actually uh, pretty interesting to do. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's some psychologists out there that will take issue with it, but sorry. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. Uh, But... uh, so, some other folks uh, who pick up this same kind of insight that Marx gives here, that capitalism is like a sorcerer that is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld, uh, are Deleuze and Guattari, some post-Marxist, uh, you know, 20th century thinkers, too. Uh, they, they wrote a, an essay that kind of makes a really similar point to what Marx is saying here uh, called Capitalism, a Very Special Delirium. And basically the point of the essay is that, like, hmm, isn't it weird that, like, uh, capitalism, like, works the way that it does? Like, it totally does work, but, like, you have to believe some, like, really weird things first before it, like, works. <laughs> like, to say that it's, like, working well, you have to believe, like, all of these other things. Um, and it's exactly that. Like, uh, capitalism is a thing that is a very special delirium that, like, uh, it's it's um, it's a pathological way to live in the world that you have to have some like assumptions about private property that you probably don't ever think about, but you have to hold them true in your life for the whole thing to kind of work and make sense. Um, right. But it's completely crazy. Uh, it's also one of those things too. That's wild. The, the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld is a especially hard thing to kind of know how to deal with because it's like, well, then who do you go after? Capitalism right. becomes this like sort of like self replicating thing in our lives that we end up doing. And it's not like you can just, you know, like if you wanted to have like a feudal revolution, well, you got to take out that lord or the king or whoever, right? It's easy to find someone to oppose, but like in capitalism, it's not because it's not like there's like a like a king or someone you can just like go and behead. Uh, right. I mean, there are, but uh, <laughs> but it's not like that would change anything. People still like would reproduce these same conditions in their own lives for whatever reasons. The transformative work is the kind of hard part of it. That's yeah, why the and also... like it, but it's just <laughs> difficult to figure out. 
Right. Uh, and also in, in distinction from the kind of Fantasia narrative, uh, there's no like head wizard that's going to come down and set everything right. Um, you know, that's like the reactionary narrative that yeah. you just uh, listen to your elders and, uh, you know, figured out the, the responsible use of power that maybe you could like tame these forces. But like that part is uh, the part of the fable where it just sort of is not not in the same kind of story. That's the power of ideology, though, I guess, that like you can't see those parameters of the world that you live in. You just live in it. Right. It yeah, takes exactly. someone smart like Marx to come along to like tell you what to do. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, we can move to the proletariat in a minute because that is uh, where we start talking about how to change all this stuff. Um, but before we do that, just one maybe last interesting kind of quote. Um, so there's this cool, uh, there's a lot of cool like existential kind of moments in this text, I think, um, just describing like what life is like uh, in capitalist society. Uh, and one of them goes like this uh they write the bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe it has converted the physician the lawyer the priest the poet the man of science into its paid wage laborers and i think that's really important because especially for those of us who are christians um i mean having occupations that we look up to with reverent awe is like kind of part of the package like unless you're like an extremely low church uh quaker or something like that which like more power to you that's cool um but like most of us are not like that uh this is a really difficult thing to reconcile yourself to under capitalism um and it also sort of pacifies i think a lot of those reverent positions because they become dependent on wages uh so the person i always think about here is actually kierkegaard um who was like my first philosophical love uh, but this is what made him really pissed about Christendom, right? Is that at the end of the day in, in Denmark, there are all these uh, priests, uh, Lutheran pastors, but they are on a payroll and you're not going to get up in front of your congregation and say something that's going to lose your entire livelihood, uh, your your wage. Um, so you can't sort of deal with the true radical demands of the gospel or whatever. Uh, and that's something Kierkegaard says that I think is really interesting and important. Um, but it's also something that, as we've noted in several places on the show before, even last week with uh, A.E. Smith, like there are real material consequences for when people start doing what they think the gospel demands. Um, you might like lose your job and then lose your next job and, and your next preaching job over and over, right? Because at the end <laughs> of the day, b- being, a, being a paid wage laborer is a really weird thing for pastors. Yeah, totally. Um I uh, I am technically still on the board of administrators at my church. <laughs> I don't know how I get on these things. <laughs> Anyways, one of the things we had to do was uh, we all had to make a collective decision about the um, uh, compensating the head pastor of our church about his, like on his uh, like retirement plan because he hadn't gotten hmm. some of it. Anyways, we had to make this like really like very like hr type of decision about our pastor and it was like the like most alienating experience of my church life like what am i uh, doing <laughs> why is this a so thing awkward. i have to do it is it <laughs> is uh well that's like that's protestantism though i guess there's no uh there's no mystery or majesty left in the church it's just like uh, <laughs> a group of people around a table uh drinking bad coffee making decisions about the uh the retirement of their pastors <laughs> yeah also troubling because i mean you you're basically deciding how much money your pastor's labor is worth uh yeah. like how much should you pay for the sermon that you heard on sunday it's a really awkward way to look at it that pastoral labor time <laughs> yeah i don't know how to calculate that one 
the labor <laughs> the labor power doesn't i don't know if that works in that situation <laughs> uh yeah well um we'll leave that to actual pastors to tell us about that i guess uh send us your emails <laughs> um but uh let's move on to the proletariat uh, a working class that i think we can maybe understand a little bit better um so lots of stuff to get into here uh but let's just start out with one kind of characterization of the proletariat so they write in proportion as the bourgeoisie i.e capital is developed in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class developed, a class of laborers who live only so long as they find work, and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers, who must sell themselves piecemeal, are like are a commodity, like every other article of commerce, and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition, to all the fluctuations of the market. Really bleak stuff. Um, so what do you think about that, Matt? Does that hold up? Is that still true of the proletariat today? Yeah, I think it is, and it's not in different ways. Um, well, first of all, I think what's worth noting here is that the proletariat and the bourgeoisie are these two opposing class structures that emerge out of feudalism after industrialization sort of takes hold, right? So industrialization changes the relationship between workers and their labor in a really fundamental way, and it collapses all other social classes into these two kind of lumps, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the people who own the means of production and the people who can only sell their labor power and like hope for the best. So I think this is right. I mean, wage labor is still a thing um, in the United States and around the world. So, uh, I mean, there's some complications like um, salaries and things, but still, yeah, I think it still works. Yeah, that's good because I do too. Now I don't have to argue about that. Uh, I think you're right, though, to highlight this kind of co-emergence of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat because many of the things that are maybe problematic or troubling about the bourgeoisie become something of potential advantages for the proletariat. Uh, so, for example, um, talking about this conflict, they write in the manifesto, here and there the contest between the two classes breaks out into riots. The real fruit of their battle lies not in the immediate result, but in the ever-expanding union of the workers. The union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry and that place the workers of different localities in contact with one another. So you get the sense that the, I mean, this is a typical sort of dialectical point, I guess, but the conflict of these two opposites produces something that um, both of those opposites then go use uh, for other kinds of, of projects. Uh, but what's interesting about the proletarian side is many of the advantages of bourgeois society end up also being uh, potentially used in the struggle against the bourgeoisie. Um the communications bit is especially important, I think, for a lot of reasons, but um, now that we live under what like Jody Dean calls communicative capitalism, <laughs> I think it's like uh, more and more and more important. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Matt, what do you think about that kind of uh, narrative of these, like um, the sort of mirrored development, I guess? Yeah, that makes sense. That's um, a huge part of Marx's work. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it kind of throughout this, I think, as we get more into communism and class struggle and stuff. But the point is that the bourgeoisie, I mean, capitalism as like a political economy is supposed to, um, <laughs> whoops, uh, is supposed to sow its own seeds, dig its own grave, uh, and like, you know, kind of overturn itself by what it produces. Um mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of questionable why. 
I, I mean, you know, the the discourse, like the post-Marxist discourse, people after Marx, basically everyone is like, hmm, this seems like an immoral science to me, but for some reason the predictive <laughs> power is not there. Why hasn't this happened, right? <laughs> that is the question right. that everyone kind of comes back to time and time again. Um, like, why why doesn't revolution happen? And it's a good question, a question I'm interested in for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what Marx thought, at least, that uh, eventually, I mean, exactly like you had said, like, the, the advantages of the bourgeoisie would end up, you know, or could end up helping the proletariat. I mean, it, it's like, um, it's like uh, industrialization isn't all bad, right? Like, you can, like, produce a ton of stuff. I don't know. You can produce a hundred right. textile quilt things or something, like, really fast. <laughs> you can fast. make a lot of coats. You can make a ton of coats, so many coats. And uh, the problem isn't that you can make a lot of coats. The problem is that, like, uh, workers still have to sell their labor and the people that own those machines get all of the money and doing nothing. So, um, yeah, I think that you're right to point that out. It's just complicated in how it actually works out. There's a conversation about it. That's all I'm trying to say. Marx isn't wrong. There's just a conversation that has to be had. (laughs) Uh, That's right. Um, So you're not on the the development of doctrine side, or you are on the development of doctrine side uh, of Marxism. (laughs) Yeah. Not uh, (laughs) analogous to the reactionaries in the Catholic Church. Um, (laughs) So before we move on to the, like how communists relate to the proletarians in particular, um, I think it might be interesting to at least note one potential criticism of the manifesto that we can pull out at least as a as a rhetoric and maybe that exposes a a, a deeper blind spot um so there's a line in here that uh, you flagged and i also flagged um where they write not only are the proletarians slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine by the overseer and above all by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself um, and I couldn't help but thinking of Katie Grimes and our yeah. conversations with her and many other people as well. But just, I mean, we were talking to her recently about this, um, that the figure of the slave and the figure of the worker are often conflated in Marxist discourse uh, in a way that's really problematic. Yeah. Uh, in my PDF of the manifesto, I just noted down, what would Katie Grimes say? Uh, <laughs> I don't actually have to wonder because I already know what she would say, uh, because in uh, Christ Divided, Katie Grimes' book that you should go buy. Uh, she does say uh, that you sh- that this kind of uh, this kind of metaphor is just that a metaphor and kind of a problematic rhetoric because uh, the enslavement of uh, black people is different than the quote enslavement of the proletariat. Right, um, and it's also interesting because in the bourgeoisie section they note that the discovery of America is totally integral to capitalism as they're dealing with it. Um, and they note, especially in that context, the rise of industrialization and, you know, communications and all that kind of stuff. But they don't note specifically the rise of the slave trade, which is really weird because um, slaves are a pretty important component of that American economy. So, yeah, I don't know. All that's to say there's a pretty huge um, blind spot toward anti-blackness that Marx and Engels just don't don't quite know here. Yeah, that's, a I think, a pretty fair critique. Um, Marx does talk about slavery, like, you know, a few times, right. but, you know, not as much as he ought to. Yeah, and he watches the Civil War pretty closely and, yeah. you know, was in favor of emancipation and all that kind of stuff. So it's not that he doesn't have anything to say about it, just that um, it doesn't feature here in the same way. So that's bad. 
yeah and and the identification of workers and slaves is not good um and that like we mentioned on the episode with katie too the accompanying document to this the angles wrote about uh proletarians where he uh defines slavery is really dumb <laughs> yeah for sure so uh that's a critique that i would like to hear more about probably yeah uh all right matt bring us into the the communist side of this whole equation love those communist sides uh yeah so the first side is uh about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and the second section is about the communist and the proletariat so if the bourgeoisie and the proletariat are the two classes that emerge in industrialization and capitalism communists play some other type of role in this whole thing so in this section marx kind of parses out exactly what communists are about well not exactly what communists are about but like you know (laughs) kind of what they're about uh like we've talked about in past weeks there's that (laughs) there's a sense that uh that i mean all texts and especially this one uh are hermeneutic projects and i think that's true exactly what these things mean all the time is not super clear but um but they mean something and we'll figure it out Mm-hmm. So uh, the second section, communist and proletarian, starts off with a line that I think is not true that maybe we can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it starts off with this statement. In what relation do the communists stand to the proletarians as a whole? The communists do not form a separate party opposed to the other working class parties. They have no interest separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They are not a, a separate party, and Marx says they have no sectarian principles. So, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it is true that they're not a separate party in a certain sense um like even at this time uh parties were a little bit different um and that's all true but uh saying that there are no sectarian principles is a little disingenuous <laughs> yeah there like the are... whole point of writing a manifesto is to make up some sectarian principles and in fact uh as i pointed out in past weeks at the end of this section there are 10 sectarian principles <laughs> so like i don't know deal with it like yes there are sectarian <laughs> principles like the, the the point the rhetorical move here i think is you know pretty clear he wants to identify that communists are like 100 percent on board with the working class right they're not trying to co-op the working class and steer them in right. some other way they're trying to liberate them and that's nice, but it's not exactly true. I mean, <laughs> like anarchists would say the same exact thing, um, right. but there are different sectarian principles at play, and it's fine to recognize that. Well, whatever. Yeah. Um, speaking of sectarian principles, here's a, here's a good one that needs some <laughs> clarification. Uh, the theory of communists may be summed up in a single sentence. The abolition of private property. Oof, that's a good one. It's a good single sentence. Yeah, uh, it is. But it actually does need some clarification because even today, uh, people, uh, con- like reactionaries, misread this on purpose, like constantly. Uh, <laughs> the abolition of private property in Marx is uh, read wrongly to mean that, like, the communists are going to come and they're going to steal your toothpaste, your toothbrush, and all of the shoelaces in your house, and they're theirs now. And that's all your family heirlooms, <laughs> your grandma's favorite quilt. Uh, if your family heirlooms are like huge tracts of land, maybe that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, but if it's yeah, if it's your grandma's quilt, probably probably not. Yeah. So the abolition of private property is the uh, summation of the theory of the communists, and it's a good one. Uh, but Marx goes on to clarify this point, and I think it needs to be a bit clarified, saying that uh, the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. 
but modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. So, like, okay, thought experiment. Imagine right now, uh, in your town, wherever you might live, um, mm-hmm. if there was, uh, at this very moment, a communist uprising, there's a revolution. Okay. Uh, y- you follow, follow me so far sounds great right <laughs> it's in my mind's eye <laughs> those communists they're not coming to your house for your toothbrush they're going immediately to like uh <laughs> like the factories <laughs> they're going to like the industrialized farms uh and so on like they're not they're not coming for your your house and like your toilet paper or whatever uh they want the bourgeois private property they want those means they want- of production they wanted to give you more toilet paper. In, in fact, yeah, that is uh, the second sectarian principle is more toilet paper for everybody. <laughs> They're coming to your house to give you a new toothbrush because they know that yours is too old because you can't afford to buy a new one. <laughs> a new toothbrush and charcoal activated toothpaste. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I also love they get really snarky in this particular chapter and i really appreciate it um so here's a good good snarky line so they say uh uh they're like lampooning the the bourgeois complaints about property and they say a hard-won self-acquired self-earned property do you mean the property of the petty artisan and the small peasant a form of property that preceded the bourgeois form there's no need to abolish that the development of industry has to a great extent already destroyed it and is still destroying it daily uh, so they just like keep uh, making fun of these disingenuous um, critiques as precisely disingenuous critiques. I think that's a good strategy. Yeah, and, and I, even though it is snarky and funny, and I like it a lot, uh, there's actually like, a good point in there that I think is really essential to understanding what Marx is thinking about politically. So there is there's such a thing called bourgeois private property, right? The means of production, um, and you know you might think of um, you might think of your own personal property or something like your toothbrush or whatever. Um, so in, in the snarky statement, Mark says, you know, do you mean the property of the petty artisan or the small peasant, a form of property that preceded the bourgeois form? You, you don't have to abolish that type of property because basically capitalism took anything that was worth taking from those people already. Yeah, um, exactly. W- whether it is, whether it was through, you know, a, like the IMF structurally adjusting a local, um, like a, a local economy or a, uh, the local means of production or something like uh, if, if uh, any individual person really had something that was worth having uh, the bourgeoisie would have taken it and appropriated it in one way or another. Right. Yep. Um, and I think too, this also goes to speak a little bit more to the kind of things that they want to abolish. Um, so for example, they say in one word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so. That's just what we intend. But he's addressing the bourgeoisie, right? Not the proletariat. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. Yeah, exactly. They're taking all they're taking all your stuff. They're taking your tracks of land. <laughs> it's right. like your bourgeois toothbrushes. It sounds it sounds bad only if you're a person who has that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I think, though, it's also worth noting here that just as they identified in the beginning of the manifesto that uh, revolutionizing the means of production also revolutionizes or at least changes social relationships, um, they note that uh, abolishing bourgeois property would also change those relationships. Um, and they use that as a really great way of, I think, um, answering some of their critics. So they're talking about how, like, bourgeois people say, uh, oh, you're just trying to take away my freedoms. Um 
pretty familiar line today or uh, mm-hmm. my individuality, etc. Uh, and they address that saying the abolition of this state of things is called by the bourgeois abolition of individuality and freedom. And rightly so, the abolition of bourgeois individuality, bourgeois independence, and bourgeois freedom is undoubtedly aimed at. Uh, so those qualifiers are really important. And they follow this up again later, uh, criticizing exactly what bourgeois individuality is. Um, so they make, they talk about it a little bit, but then they come to say, you must therefore confess that by individual you, the bourgeoisie, mean no other person than the bourgeois, than the middle-class owner of property. This person must indeed be swept out of the way and made impossible. And I think that idea of making a certain way of being human impossible should be read as uh, precisely the thing that would liberate you, right? Yeah. That uh, you, you should live in a world where it is impossible for one person uh, to be able to rule over another person just because they have a ton of bourgeois property and you don't get to have any of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, clarifying that point even further, uh, so, I mean, you know, we've said a lot about bourgeois property and individualism and stuff, uh, but communism, hmm, the theory of communism, the abolition of bourgeois property, uh, Marx says this, uh, he says, communism deprives no man, uh, well, okay, sorry, Marx, communism deprives no person of the power (laughs) to appropriate the products of society. All that does is to deprive them of the power to subjugate the labor of others by means of such appropriation. Okay, so the point of communism isn't to say, like, you know, you can't appropriate the products of society. It just says that you can't uh, subjugate other people to get those uh, products of society. The point of communism is is to, like, outlaw wage labor, basically, and give workers control of the means of production. Like, that's that's good. That's a good change. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they're not uh, like they note that that change means a lot of other changes. Uh, They note changes in the family, um, changes in how people relate to their nations. Um, One of my favorite lines in here is, uh, do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this crime, we plead guilty. (laughs) So uh, friends of the teens, Marx and Engels, I really like that a lot. Um, Put that on your skateboard, uh, grinding down the, uh, you know, police office stairs or whatever. Yeah, speaking of teens, I think I need to interject here really quickly. Um, in Assassin's Creed Syndicate, a game, <laughs> <laughs> a game that is uh, extremely good. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a series of uh, of quests, I guess. I, I don't know. I, in most games I play, they're called quests. In this one, I think they're called missions. Who knows? Anyways, that Karl Marx gives you because uh, you're in uh, you're in England <laughs> and. Uh, there's one where you have to stop an anarchist from uh, stealing a bunch of explosion explosives, but there are several. There are several others. Uh, I guess noting the the sectarian point we made earlier, uh, but there are several other missions where you're specifically going to these uh, factory, like these warehouses where kids are working, and you're liberating the children. It's so good. Mm, nice. That's awesome. It is really good, actually. I love it. Um, there are some. There's some stuff about Marx that game gets wrong. Uh, like where he decries uh, revolutionary approaches for uh, democratic ones explicitly, but um, <laughs> but it's good otherwise. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, so go out there. I don't know. Uh, tell Assassin's Creed that they're wrong on Twitter, but you know, also it is them. kind of a bummer in Assassin's Creed that you get to work for Marx, and it's like, hmm, okay, you get to help the workers, and that's awesome. But then, like, end game. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess you have to work for the queen. That sucks. Oh dang! That's I know. Not good. I know, just like maybe don't. Just join the just join the international. <laughs> yeah, uh that's gotta be the next uh, Assassin's Creed sequel, hopefully. <laughs> I'd be very into that, yeah. 
Okay, so there's a lot more that we can say here, um, both about the Communist Manifesto and about Assassin's Creed, uh, but we'll <laughs> save some of that for uh, a, a, an episode next week. Um, anyways, uh, I think to kind of round out this conversation, we've said a lot about private property, we've said a lot, a lot about ca- class struggle, uh, but there's one more thing that we must talk about because we've already promised it in this episode, and that is the uh, the bourgeois socialist, the reactionary socialist. Uh, Dean, let it let it fly. Let it fly. Let this this good critique go into the wind. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, let me go ahead and read a paragraph, and then we'll jump into it. So they write, um, the socialistic bourgeois, uh, that's how they characterize them, want all the advantages of modern social conditions without the struggles and dangers necessarily resulting therefrom. They desire the existing state of society minus its revolutionary and disintegrating elements. They wish for a bourgeoisie without a proletariat. The bourgeoisie naturally conceives the world in which it is supreme to be the best, and bourgeois socialism develops this comfortable conception into various more or less complete systems. In requiring the proletariat to carry out such a system, and thereby to march straight away into the social New Jerusalem, it but requires, in reality, that the proletariat should remain within the bounds of existing society, but should cast away all hateful ideas concerning the bourgeoisie. Uh, I think that critique just, like, really works in so many circumstances, um, both from, like, good-hearted liberals, I guess, to Catholic social teaching people, uh, to especially even folks like uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, even, like, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that sort of, you know, emerging form of uh, what's called democratic socialism, but I think is a a bourgeois form of socialism. Um, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I guess I want to, um, I don't want to be too mean about it. <laughs> like, you know, the, the bourgeois socialism of, of like a Bernie Sanders type person isn't all bad. There's a good, there's, yeah, a, there's a role it plays and that's fine, but it is definitely the case. Uh, I mean, I think people make these critiques all the time, but like, if you, if you are a person who says they are a socialist, democratic or otherwise, and what you're really after is just like free healthcare. Like, well, there's something else kind of going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, what Marx is laying out here is the transformation of society, uh, the abolition of classes, and the abolition of bourgeois private property. Uh, so, if your socialism doesn't have room for those things, well, uh, this this one's for you, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just thinking of a. I saw an interview with uh, Ocasio Cortez recently, where. Um, she had said that she felt that extreme poverty is a form of violence. Um, but she kept qualifying it as extreme poverty. And uh, it's just kind of a strange thing because it's like, well, maybe like all poverty is actually a result of violence. Hmm. And, you know, wh- why not uh, sort of keep pushing that line harder and harder? And on the one hand, it's like, well, that's not an electable strategy. And that's true. <laughs> like people aren't going to elect probably somebody uh, making that kind of, these kinds of claims, like from straight from the communist manifesto or whatever. But on the other hand, it is a genuine difference in goal. Um, and I don't think that Ocasio-Cortez, for example, would see herself signing up on the communist manifesto. Um, and I think it's like, it's important to note those differences, even if you have like a critical support for something that seems to be gaining steam and like, your district or neighborhood or whatever. Like it's good that communists keep some of those people accountable on those kinds of of problems. Uh, That's exactly what Marx thinks that you should do is that it's a communist role uh, to keep those people accountable. Yeah. uh, In the intro somewhere, Marx says that communists are always having to decry their, their positions. (laughs) 
<laughs> right <laughs> um they, they should make they need to make their uh, positions known and write them down and that's i guess all we're doing here <laughs> yeah exactly um well we're gonna talk a lot more or a little more anyway about some stuff in the manifesto because you just can't get through it all and we've like blazed through so, so much of it and kind of done an injustice to the genius that is the communist manifesto <laughs> um but we'll uh we'll get to more of that actually in our next episode we're going to talk about marx's uh, critique of the gotha program and uh i think that there are some good um ways to bring some of the stuff we haven't touched on here into that context uh, especially kind of talking about like the more positive elements that feature in the manifesto of like what you should actually do um so i guess we should maybe like save that for next week yeah sounds good well, if there's one thing we can take away from this is that uh, Marx has a lot to say to us through the Communist Manifesto still. And I think that we should keep li- keep listening, keep reading what he has to say. I think it's worth it. Uh, even if uh, it ends up, you know, kind of critiquing the sort of state of the left today or something, uh, it'll only be better for it, I suppose. Yep, I think you're right. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, then you should go support us on Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. We have a Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement. Search it and join it. You have to be approved because we don't just let anybody in. Just kidding. Yeah, we do. Um, <laughs> we can get in there and talk with people and it's a good time. Cool. Uh, we're also part of some neat other podcast networks. Uh, one's called Theology Corner and the other one's called Critical Mediations. Uh, they've all got lots of good stuff going on. Um, I like them all. A lot of good podcasts, so fill up your phone or whatever with all all this good content. Um, uh, last week, I plugged uh, Revolutionary Re- Left Radio's uh, episode on the Spanish Civil War. I'm just going to do it again because it's that good. It's so good, <laughs> I'll talk about it twice. Uh, so go listen to it and uh, wrestle with the struggle, <laughs> the, the inter-left struggle that uh, existed during that time. Yikes. It's rough stuff. It's rough stuff. Okay, cool. Well, uh, music uh, this episode. <laughs> I don't want to struggle with it right now. Let's just move on. I can't think about it or else get angry. Uh, okay. The music in this episode is from Amaria Armstrong. Uh, she has a podcast too. Shoot, what's it called? Uh, Underthought. Yeah. Go listen to that. <laughs> anyway, she she made the music for our podcast, and it's great. Now she has her own podcast, too, so that's good. Listen to it. Uh, the outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. Also good. Check them out on Bandcamp or probably probably just Bandcamp. I don't know where else you'd find them. Uh, cool. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, so...